I've never really cared about uh, how people perceive my political affiliation. Um, I I would say that I am, you know, pretty liberal in the sense that I believe in everyone's right to live as they please, for the most part. I am a very, you know, Bill of Rights person, First Amendment, no search and seizure, like all of that stuff is pretty much where I stand. So there was a point where the left abandoned those ideals and the right kind of swooped in and picked them up. Now, the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter what your political view is. Those are the only reasonable ideals. We have to support freedom of speech. We have to support the freedom to worship, the freedom to assemble, um, freedom to defend yourself, uh, to have your home be your own and not subject to unlawful government search. This is how we can live in a reasonable way with each other. And this is how we can live in a reasonable way with people we don't agree with. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest this week is Libby Emmons. Libby now works mainly as a journalist, writing articles about ideological divides in culture and politics for places like Quillette, The Federalist, and The Spectator. She's also the editor of the center-right Canadian news magazine, The Post-Millennial. But before she entered the sphere of public debate about the news, she was in the theater world. Specifically, she was in a radical feminist theater collective in New York. But when she published an article, a very dry academic article, she says, about transhumanism that made a conceptual comparison with transgenderism, the theater community deemed her a moral threat, and she was exiled from that world. Now, on the surface, the story could be seen as yet another casualty of so-called cancel culture. Moreover, nothing terrible happened to her, and the overreaction on the part of her peers begs the question of whether it makes sense to feed such reactions by continuing to talk about them. But that's actually part of the reason I wanted to have Libby on the show. When I met her at a dinner party a few months ago in New York, I was struck by the way she looked at her situation through the prism of larger ideas. I also wanted an excuse to bring someone on to talk about transhumanism. So I'm happy she came on. I'll also say that we recorded this interview back on May 20th, and there's some talk about face mask policy toward the end that might seem a wee bit dated by now, though not too much, actually, since we still seem to be in a bit of a free-for-all when it comes to that subject. So here's my talk with Libby Emmons. Libby Emmons, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thanks so much. You are the editor-in-chief of The Post-Millennial. You also write for publications like The Federalist, The New York Post, Quillette, Unheard, The Spectator, The American Conservative, Arc Digital. Uh, these are, I guess you'd say, centrist and in some cases center-right publications. But not so long ago, you were part of a feminist theater collective uh, in New York, Puss yeah. Collective, yeah, I believe we were, it, it was called. <laughs> we were called Puss Collective. Yeah. Yeah. So how did a nice uh, feminist like you uh, wind up uh, writing for conservative publications? Well, what, it all, what went yeah. wrong? What went wrong? Um, yeah. So it was sort of interesting. Uh, the feminist theater company that I was part of closed in 2018. 
um, in October 2018 rather abruptly. And it was the result of my having written for Quillette, which is an Australian uh, publication that is really about bringing up new interesting ideas, um, saying what other people aren't willing to say, founded and, and run by Claire Lehman, who's, you know, such an interesting uh, person and thinker, and also John Kay, who's the Canadian editor, um, who I, you know, both of whom I've worked with. So I wrote for them in July, the story came out, and it was called The Transhumanism Revolution. And the piece was the result of a few years of research I'd been doing, where I went down quite a long and twisted rabbit hole of transhumanism, um, which is the intentional evolution of human beings with the help of technology to bring human beings to that next, you know, whatever that next level is, right? Level up humanity. Um, there was actually a transhumanist candidate for president, Zoltan Istvan, who's run a couple of times on a transhumanist platform, uh, who I interviewed a couple of years ago and then lost the interview and I still can't find it. <laughs> so, oh, no. so I'm very annoyed about that. But, you know, sometimes oh. these things happen when you're doing too much and you depend on Google Docs. So, yeah. So uh, what I started to realize was that there were um, undercurrents of transhumanism in Western culture that were driving this ideology and this idea. And I thought perhaps people weren't even aware of the fact that when they were engaging in these subsets, what they were doing was pushing the concept of transhumanism. Um, and what seemed pretty apparent to me were ideas like AI human integration, which has primarily been uh, an Elon Musk project. He's got this thing called Neuralink where yeah yeah which is both fascinating and terrifying in the fascinating um and very useful category is the idea that a paraplegic can move things because their brain is connected to a computer and the computer is connected to a device that can device that can actually operate in the physical world that's kind of cool um but in the terrifying sense is that everybody's brains would be linked <laughs> And that doesn't seem, yeah, that seems like, yeah, I'm a Star Trek person. That's a very Borg concept. I was, um, I was, I'm sort of horrified by that. The other one was um, body hacking. So body hacking is where you can integrate devices into your body. Um, one of the really common ones that people can DIY is an RFID chip. And this can help you, you know, you could just, instead of a key reader, using a, a, like a card key to open a key, you know, to you get access to a key reader, you could just swipe your hand, have an RFID chip in there or get your garage door open with an RFID chip. It's really handy for people who lose their keys. People have also put magnets in their hands for, I guess, party tricks mostly. <laughs> um, but there's also people who are really interested in doing things like replacing healthy limbs with mechanical ones. Um, in order to, I guess, have a greater kind of function. And then I addressed the thing that, of course, caused um, outrage and the dissolution of my theater project, which was transgender ideology, which seems very linked to transhumanism. Uh, there are a number of notable transhumanists who are, in fact, transgender. 
Martine Rothblatt is one. Um, and transhuman, transgender ideology is basically ide the idea that your mind and your body are two distinct things. And so what was so interesting to me was that each of these three things, AI, human integration, body hacking, and transgender ideology were answering Descartes' question about the mind-body split. And they were saying very distinctly, yes, there is a split between mind and body. The two things are barely related at all. Um, and for me, that's something 20 years ago that I probably would have agreed with. It probably would have been on board with that. Um, I was, I delved into existentialism for a while. I was uh, very, um, I wouldn't say gung-ho exactly, but I definitely was dabbling in, in concept of atheism. And I believed also that there was, uh, in part, nothing that my mind was limited by, including my body, that my body was not a limit on my mind. 20 years ago, where were you? You were in, in college? Were you like 20 years studying ago, philosophy? Was, yeah, 20 years ago, I was just starting graduate school at Columbia University in playwriting. Prior to that, I had been at Sarah Lawrence College where I studied theater and um, philosophy. So I did study philosophy rather intensively. And I continued to study philosophy and um, you know, ideas and thought and literature and all that during my during my time working on my MFA as well. So these were ideas that were very interesting to me. Um, and I had been very uh, there had been a lot of talk about women writers. Right. So this idea that you're a woman writer was a thing. And I started to try and figure out for myself, what does that mean to be a woman writer? And I realized I didn't want to be a woman writer. I just wanted to be a writer who is also a woman. I didn't really mm -hmm. see how these things were connected. And I still don't know why we have to classify ourselves according to our identity prior to saying, here is the work. Check it out. I find that so obnoxious, you know, that there is. Well, it's sexist. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sexist. infantilizing and it's yes. sexist. But like, so if this is, so this would have been like back in the in the 90s, were they saying like woman writer because that was a way of kind of like getting you into playwriting festivals or it was as a way of kind of marketing ourselves or was this being presented as like there there is a particular way that women write I mean this was Norman it Mailer's was just, whole gambit yeah, right I mean, like was, you can always you can see you know, the scent of a woman's ink that was right. the famous Francine <laughs> right. piece about Norman Mailer around that time right yeah. or or Nietzsche saying that women are not deep they're not even shallow you know that whole thing um <laughs> so you yeah there was an awful lot of it was just how you were classified. There were writers and then there were women writers and it wasn't even really questioned. And it irked me quite substantially. And additionally, because I could barely identify with any women writers at all. I was reading, you know, they're giving you Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton and Anais Nin and all these people. And I'm just like, oh, this is so soft and, and, bratty and pissy, you know, like I just could not, I've since read Plath and um, kind of ditched the other ones, but I've since found a lot more to respect and enjoy in Plath's work, but that came much later. So yeah, I was very opposed to being a woman writer. I was just a writer. I was very opposed to there being something about my existence as a female that was uh, 
considered prior to my my writing work. I was very serious about playwriting. Um, you know, I've been produced across the country and published and all of that. Um, so yeah, I found it infuriating. And so that's what I mean when I say 20 years ago, I would have gone along fully with this mind body split thing as a means to defend my work, not as a means of identity, perhaps, but as a means to demand that the work stand on its own, which I still fully believe that it should. However, something big changed, I guess, about, well, I guess I'd have to say 11 years ago when my son was born. And I realized quickly upon becoming pregnant that there was very little separation between mind and body at all. Um, I also had been on birth control for a very long time. And it was only maybe within the year prior to um, conception that I went off the pill and felt like a, like just totally different. I just felt totally different about who I was and my body and all of these things. Um, it really just felt like a, the only way I can describe it is it was like a log flume ride in my brain. And it was like all of this, maybe personality. I don't know what the right word is, but a lot of, um, excitement for life, I would say, just kind of burst forth that wasn't there before. I had always thought I was sort of introverted and a little depressed. And it turns out that I was just medicated, I think. Uh, on the birth control yeah, pill. Birth control Wait, this, pill. Is re- this is remarkable. Because yeah. you're talking about this the way people talk about going on or off of antidepressants. Right. For yeah, instance. that's really that how this it... Is, so would, yeah, th- this is like a, such a prosaic question, but did you go off because you were intending to get pregnant? Did this coincide with being in a relationship? Like, or you really yeah. think this was a physiological uh, happening? Well, I'd been on it since I was 16. My doctor pushed me on it saying, you have polycystic ovarian syndrome and you need to be on this to regulate your cycle. And I was like, okay, I'm 16. And then I stayed on it my whole life. I was married. Um, you know, don't tell the the Catholic Church uh, that this is what I did. But anyway, yeah. So then I, when I was like about what thirty four, my doctor was like, "Hey, if you want to have kids, you should probably think about that now." And I was like, "Oh, okay. Um, I don't really want to have kids, but I am not comfortable saying no to life and to love." Um, also, I'd had a professor at Sarah Lawrence, Rosette Lamont who I knew when she was in her 70s, and she was this fierce older woman, French woman in leather pants, who'd had this amazing career in theater. She had been friends with Samuel Beckett and Eugene Ionesco, who were men that I, you know, respected eminently and still enjoy their work. And uh, she said to me, um, Elizabeth, the one thing, no, she said, my mother and I worked very hard on my career. And the one regret I have is that I never had children. So here I am, 34. My doctor says, maybe you should think about having children. And I'm like, meh, you know, I like my life. Ah, Rosette said she regretted it. I adored Rosette. She taught me so much, um, mostly out of the classroom in small comments like this one, frankly. She was just an exceptional woman. And so I thought about this. 
and I talked to, you know, my husband about it and, uh, we were like, yeah, we have plenty of extra love. Let's just go for it. Right. Let's see what happens. Basically just see what happens. So I went off the pill and that's when, yeah, it was like a, it was like a dam burst forth in my, in my brain and in my heart. And I just felt so much more in touch with the world around me. Um, it was like, I could see colors that I hadn't seen before. It was really shocking. And as, as if, as if to just be even more, um, confusing my gynecologist, when I was in my thirties that I told her about the poly poly and she was like, Oh, and she checked it out, whatever. She was like, you don't have that. And I was like, did it go away? And she's like, no, if you don't have it, you never had it. So what the Mm. hell happened? Like, did my doctor lie to me when I was 16? Because there was definitely a thing among uh, prep school girls where all the prep school girls were on birth control. All the prep school girls, doctors and mothers put them on birth control. But that just happened. Had, were you were you sexually active at that time or this was just like no, standard? No, I mean, after care. that, I was like, sure, maybe I'll be sexually active now. I'm on the pill. I may as well. Right. <laughs> now that you mention it. Yes. <laughs> now that you mention it. Sure. Seems fine. Um, so, yeah. So that was weird. So but what I started to realize was that there is really no mind body split at all, that we are intrinsically linked to our bodies that what happens to our bodies and what happens to our minds are, um, you know, that we are one organism. It's just that uh, we can think ourselves out of it. And so that's what I think transgender ideology is. I think that's what the AI neural link could become. I think that's what body hacking is about. And transhumanism is definitely about that. So after I wrote this piece in Quillette, Um, And I had been writing in opposition to transgender ideology prior to that. I obviously have nothing against individuals and their choices, but I do think that transgender ideology that posits that um, you can feel you are a woman is actually based on stereotypes of femininity, stereotypes of masculinity that don't really have anything to do with, uh, you know, what we can do in our lives. Right. And I want to let's I want to get a sense of the timeline here. So you you were I think you graduated from the theater program at Columbia in 2007. You were in the graduate theater program. Yes, that's right. Um, OK, at, at Columbia. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm also a, a graduate of the writing graduate writing division nice. at Columbia. So, um, OK, so you were interested in the concept of transhumanism all of these years at what point did you start to think of uh start to start to think of the gender identity question uh vis-a-vis these other interests that you had because i mean i don't think people started talking about gender identity in this way really until the last couple of years so what was your relationship to the idea of transgenderism i mean we weren't even calling it that back then. It was yeah. transsexual, right? Right. I think the so, first play I wrote that involved concepts of trans ideology was probably in, I want to say I was working on it in 2012. Yeah, 2012. Um, and that became a play that was called How to Sell Your Gang Rape Baby for Parts. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, which was produced by the Puss Collective eventually. Um, 
And we worked on that for a while because it was really a lot of fun. It's one of those great titles you'd yeah. never see anymore. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's, yeah. And the woman no, who came up with that fantastic. title, um, the woman who came up with that title for me, which was, you know, of course, based on the work, she was one of the people who is no longer uh, my friend based on everything that happened, which is a shame. So, um, yeah, so that's sort of, that all still sucks. But the uh, yeah, so I that was about when I started really working on it was 2012. The first piece that I co-wrote for the Federalist about it was in I would say June 2015. Okay. Yeah, I was not unopen about my views that transgender ideology um, solidifies sex-based stereotypes. Uh, but I also was producing trans playwrights. I mean, I have no, you know, it's like the more you say you don't have an issue with somebody, the more everyone's like, you have an issue. Um, right. Yeah. But so then, it, yeah. So then I wrote the piece in Colette. Nobody paid, nobody in the theater community read anything I wrote in The Federalist. Uh, and I wrote for The Federalist a few more times after that, including, a, you know, a piece about a, a Palestinian poet who was jailed in Saudi Arabia for apostasy and different things like that. So, but nobody cared in this New York indie theater community. Did they know you were writing for the Federalist at all, or they just didn't care, or they didn't know what the Federalist was? I was sharing stories that I was writing on Facebook, but I think people thought that it was reasonable that I was speaking to the conservative side about liberal ideas, which is in fact exactly what I was doing. To me, saying that transgender ideology entrenches gender stereotypes is a feminist perspective. It's a deeply feminist perspective. And was that the kind of thing you would talk about with, for instance, the trans playwrights that you were working with? Like what the the trans people that you knew, were they more or less uh, on the same page? I didn't really talk about it with, um, I mean, the women I was working with knew my views, but I, I didn't, it wasn't like a, part of casual conversation. Mostly I just talked about the work, like maybe you should revise this and do you like this staging, uh, that kind of stuff. And was the work, was the work of the trans playwrights overtly, uh, ideological or identity based, or did they have, were they playwrights who happened to be trans? I think, it, I mean, if I recall, cause this was a while ago, I mean, this would have been like 2008, maybe 2009, 10. Um, I would say that mostly it was about, it was like personal to them. It was just good writing. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was good stuff, good writing. So that's why I ran it. I mean, it wasn't particularly ideological. We weren't running stuff. We were working at the Bowery Poetry Club, my theater company. We were in residence there for a while doing a short play series. And that's in the capacity that I produced like hundreds of playwrights. Uh from all over the place. Um, and we, you know, we basically just went for stuff that we thought was good. So either the writing was good and we wanted to see that writing up, or there would be a character that we thought an actress that we knew could really, you know, kill that part, or it was funny, or we needed something light and this was a good light piece. So, you know, we're, you're building a night of like six short shows, short plays. And you're just putting in what you think is going to be good work that your audience is going to enjoy. So that was the that was the capacity in the which the 
the work was chosen. And we went through, you know, hundreds of submissions and we didn't accept most of them. Um, so we just took the stuff that we liked. Uh, and was yeah. it work by women? It's a it's a feminist theater collective. This was a this collective. was a previous was this was a previous iteration of a project. This was a previous oh, project. Okay, uh, and it was called Sticky, and the company was called Blue Box, and we produced a ton of women playwrights. Yeah, <laughs> mostly because I mean we also produced a bunch of my friends. You know, so that's who I knew, and that's who we were producing. Okay, but it wasn't exclusively women. No, Sorry, I don't mean not, to, no, to dwell yeah, on this. I just it's okay. want to understand the context. Yeah, okay. So, all right. So you finally, you're writing for The Federalist. You're sort of under the radar. Uh, no one's noticing. And then you write this piece for, for Quillette mm-hmm. and all hell breaks loose. It took a while. It was a slow burn. So the piece came out in July. I posted it on Facebook. As I said, I'd been doing the research for years. Um listening to podcasts. This was what year? This was 2018. I was listening to podcasts. Okay. I was doing a ton of um, research aside from that, digging into the literature from some of the different communities, um, biohacking and all of that stuff. I mean, really fascinating. So I shared the piece on Facebook. I was very proud of it. I had worked intensely with uh, my editor and I got a lot of comments back that said I needed to educate myself. Um, that I was misunderstanding things and people were really dwelling on the transgender part. And what was the, what was the premise of the piece? Like if you, if you were going to go pitch the piece, what would you say it was about just in a nutshell? I would say that the piece was about undercurrents of transhumanism in Western culture and asking readers if this was the direction they wanted culture to be going in. And if it wasn't to give it a thought. That's really okay. the premise. Sounds fair enough. Think about these things, please. Nobody's, nobody's harmed. Right. Nobody's harmed by things, that. Um, so I got a lot of comments about how I needed to educate myself. Um, some people said that, um, you know, they didn't, they didn't want to be friends with me anymore. And then it kind of just went away. Um, and it wasn't really that big a deal. I told the women that I was working with in Puss Collective that I was running the piece. I suggested that we should prepare to have extra traffic on our website, which we did have. Um, And July finishes up, August, September, whatever. And then in October, and it pretty much had just gone away. You know, I mean, these, these things come and go rather quickly. So in October, I was in San Francisco. I had a play reading there that I went to, to be part of. Um, and I checked my Facebook and I saw that it was it was slamming, like it was really going to not go well. I had a few um, comments. It was really just two actresses that I had worked with previously who I have the utmost respect for, very talented um, women who uh, I guess at that point were non-binary. Uh, I don't know if that's still their deal, but they both publicly commented that um, basically I was this bad person and they didn't want to talk to me anymore. And, you know, basically, and then I was alerted to some threads about me on uh, Facebook pages of colleagues and other friends where I wasn't tagged, but I was being discussed. So I went and checked those out. And there was like one of my grad school professors was saying, some rather unkind things, women that I'd known for a very long time, 
were saying some rather unkind things, deciding together that they weren't going to be my friend anymore. Um, I commented something along the lines of, uh, I thought most respect for you and I'm, I'm sorry to lose your friendship, you know? Um, cause these people they're you know, I, I don't agree with how they're doing it at all. And I don't agree with their view, but they want to stand up for what they think is right. And people ought to do that. Right. So, okay. So I'm in San Francisco. I see this is all blowing up. And I think to myself, this is my last theater project. I'm in San Francisco and this is my last play reading. This is it. I mean, this is it. And it, it was, I went back home, back to New York. We had a meetup for a play that we were working on called Friend Box, which was a musical. Um, And it was very strange. We did the read through of the the latest draft of the show. It was very funny. Um, We had an actress in to read the lead part. We were considering her to play it. Great actress. Funny part. Uh, No one laughed. I mean, there were no laughs. And I was taking notes on the on the reading, right, like about changes that we would make or whatever. And one of the notes I took was you are taking notes on a show that is never happening. We were take we were we had the reading in a space that we had access to as part of a you know grant of from that theater company that we were using their space. We had you know we knew when we were going to be doing um, our pre like our what do you call it? I can't even think of what it's workshop productions, right? We were going to have like a couple of workshop workshop productions. We were talking about who should we should get to compose the music for the songs that we were writing. Uh, and yeah. Right. And so it was on, it was on, it was, it was happening. It was happening. Ostensibly. Yeah. So at the end of that reading, the actress left. Thank you for considering me for the part. Um, and the director of the project said that she couldn't work on the play if I was going to be working on it. And that because of the way I had behaved, we were not going to have any audience and we were not going to have any reception um, in the theater community that we were part of, which is downtown indie theater community, right? Experimental. And just to be clear, that's what we were doing. This was not a play you had written. You were one of the producers. No, I was writing it. Right? I was writing it along with these other women. We were all writing okay, it. Okay, got it. So, got it. So, yeah. so, but they, and were the other women there? Were, yeah. Nobody was laughing at anybody's jokes. That's right. Including these other two women who were yeah, it was, innocent. It was, yeah, there was one actress who was definitely innocent. And then there was four, uh, three other women and me. So it was four of us doing this project. Okay. We were producing, writing, we were working together. We were coming up with a story together. We were like, yeah, it was very collaborative. Okay. And I just want to be clear. What, what were you actually saying in the article that they objected to? Because you were, I'm sure you were very clear that you were not anti-trans, you were not denying anybody's existence, anybody's humanity, were you just speaking about a kind of uh, almost like logical fallacy um, yeah, it when was it comes very to academic. Uh, trans I was, ideology? Yeah, yeah okay. I mean, I wasn't even saying like, I'm not against anybody. It was just a very academic article. It was like, 
was very like, yeah, that's all it was. You know, I'm overeducated. And then, then this was like, look, I'm overeducated. I'm writing a very academic article. Um, right. I mean, you know. is it kind of like, was this around the time that the we, there was the Rebecca uh, Tuval uh, eruption? I think she published the piece in uh, Hypatia. I hope I'm pronouncing Hi, that right. Hypatia. It was making the one about Hypatia. Rachel Zulazal and like making that comparison. Yes. Yeah, I think she was she was kind of posing the question of whether um, if if transgender uh, is a thing, why isn't transracialism a phenomenon to potentially be be thought about? And she wasn't saying transracialism exists. She wasn't saying it's good, it's bad. It was like, well, what would happen? if we compare these two concepts, why are they not compatible? Why are they not comparable, et cetera? And she was absolutely run out of town on a rail uh, for even just kind of posing this as a thought experiment. So was your article sort of in that, in that universe of thought experiments? It might've been, although I wasn't really saying making a thought experiment. I was saying, you know, transhumanism is answering the Cartesian question, saying that there is definitely a mind-body split. And these three elements of contemporary culture are fully in line with that and are pressing forward at hyperspeed. So this was around, okay, this was 2018. So this was exactly around the time when I think a lot of people who had always thought of themselves as on the left or liberal uh, really started to kind of question a lot of the media framings and narratives that we think was the fall of 2000. Well, was it 2018 that, or or that Jordan Peterson kind of came onto the scene talking about the pronouns. Am I remembering that correctly? Or maybe it was popped up, I think a year before, I think that was 2017 actually, exactly. Or like late 2016, early 2017. I think think it was actually the fall 2016. So I stand corrected. But yeah. And I actually heard about him on a podcast that I was listening to researching transhumanism. Okay. (laughs) And I was like, oh, who's this guy? That's interesting. Right. And were you still feeling strongly like you needed to identify as somebody on the left? Or like, did you just feel everything was kind of destabilizing more generally? Like, how did you, or did you even care about how you were identifying? I've never really cared about uh, how people perceive my political affiliation. Um, I, I would say that I am, you know, pretty liberal in the sense that I believe in everyone's right to live as they please, for the most part. I am a very, you know, Bill of Rights person, First Amendment no search and seizure, like all of that stuff is pretty much where I stand. So there was a point where the left abandoned those ideals and the right kind of swooped in and picked them up. Now, the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter what your political view is. Those are the only reasonable ideals. We have to support freedom of speech. We have to support the freedom to worship, the freedom to assemble. Um, freedom to defend yourself, uh, to have your home be your own and not subject to unlawful government search. This is how we can live in a reasonable way with each other. And this is how we can live in a reasonable way with people we don't agree with about lots of other fundamental things like who God is or if there is one. Um, You know, we need these things. These things are not just our inalienable rights. 
that were basically given to us by God in that garden with our, you know, when we when we claimed our free will. Um, if we can go to a very old uh, creation myth. Yes, the, uh, you're, you're reaching way, way back. Way back, yeah. But the, um, you know, that's where these things came from. We are born with these rights. I believe that fully. And upholding these rights is the only way that we have found to have a society that is full of people who are drastically different, who believe drastically different things, and who all want to raise their kids in a safe and peaceful way. If we take away these things, then we basically have a bunch of people telling each other what to do. We're going to pause here for a brief message. Hi there. My name's Paul Shirley. I'm a former professional basketball player turned writer and also the founder of a thing called The Process. I'm honored to have a few seconds within Megan's podcast to tell you what we do at The Process. If you're anything like most people, you're scattered, overstimulated, and frustrated by your inability to concentrate for long periods of time. Texts, emails, social media, and somehow you're expected to make progress at your job and on your passion projects. It's a lot. This is where the process comes in. I believe that everything worth doing requires a process to do it, a set of habits and routines that allow you to access sustained periods of deep work. Through virtual co-working and productivity coaching, that's what we do at the process. We help people like you learn to be productive, not busy. And here's the best part. You won't be doing this alone. Inside our platform, you'll meet people from all over the world, people who are dealing with the same frustrations you are, and people who want the same things you do, structure, accountability, community, and most of all, progress on the projects most important to you. We'd love to have you. To learn more, come see us at createyourprocess.com. So when did you start writing for these publications? When did you make the shift from person in the theater world to person in the kind of journalism, punditry, opinion, expressing sphere? January 11th, 2019. Okay, okay. Uh, Quillette had a meetup in Toronto and I I had to figure out a new life and a new career. Um, Were you living in Toronto? No, I was living in New York City, in Brooklyn, where I still am. Okay. Um, so, so I went. I went to Toronto to meet up with people from Quillette. I liked writing for Quillette right a, quite a bit. I had written two pieces for them by then, because after my theater company collapsed, I I gave two weeks, and every day I reached out to the women who I was working with, um, who I adored. And said, hey, I think we should work this out. I think we should work this out. I don't think this should kill the project. You know, why don't you guys take the project? Everything. And then I got in touch with Colette and I said, hey, (laughs) writing for you ended my theater career. Can I write about that? And they were like, yes, (laughs) you can write about that. Um, And then I just started pitching everywhere. Let's just kind of fast forward to the last year or so. What has been preoccupying you the most? I mean, it's been such uh, it's people are outraged in any number of ways. And um, it's kind of easy to like get upset with somebody for not being sufficiently upset about this or that. Like what has kind of stayed with you uh, throughout the last year 
what 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 has sort of annoyed you the most, or where do you find the most extreme hypocrisy, for example? Um, you know, I think a lot of people would say something similar, but the so we went into this COVID panic in New York. It was March sixteenth. Uh, two weeks to flatten the curve. Okay, seems fair. I went down to my mom's house. She lives in Jersey. Um, she's in amazing, you know, shape. She's like fine, but uh, she's in her seventies, and I was like, I don't know how long my mom is going to be alone. If she gets sick, I want to take care of her. Um, so my son and I went down there for a while, and then six weeks later, we came back to New York. I was like, this is good now. You know what happened in two weeks? I'm ready. Six weeks. It seems like if we get sick now, we won't be overwhelming the hospital, which was the whole point, right? Don't everyone that was the initial go goal, to the hospital? Right? It seems so quaint. Right. It seems very far away now, that idea. But right. yes. So the, the hospitals in New York City did get overwhelmed. We weren't part of that. Uh, so I figured, you know, now it's slowing down a little bit. If we come back, if we get sick, if we have to go to the hospital, we won't be part of the giant disaster. Okay. Um, Seems fair. So then it was, I think it was, so we came back to New York City May 6th, uh, May 24th. I just have a thing with remembering dates. May 24th, we went into Manhattan. I was like, it's been a while since I have seen my dear beloved city. I'm going to go to it. Took a, we took the ferry over, walked up from Wall Street Pier 4, straight up Broadway, feeling really heartened. You know, it's a beautiful time of year in New York. Uh, people were out, people were hanging out in the parks, you know, a bunch of kids hanging out in the park. I love seeing, um, I love seeing all the crazy kids in Washington square making out and smoking joints and doing flips on their skateboards and generally just being fools. I love that. So anyways, Mm -hmm. seemed like everything was going to open up, seemed like, okay, the city is not dead. We're going to be okay. It's all going to be fine. The next day. We had the uh, Central Park Karen situation in the morning. So the next day, all hell breaks, breaks loose. And, you know, it takes a little while to build because the video has the video had to be released of all those things. The George so Floyd the next day, yeah. yeah. So the next day, people are just talking about the birding situation, how serious that is. And, you know, like five seconds later, everyone's talking about George Floyd. Um and it's so interesting that those two things were on the same day, wow. I think. And it was exactly 10 weeks after March 16th. So you asked me what the utmost hypocrisy was. In April, in Michigan, in the state capitol, a bunch of protesters went to protest lockdown restrictions. Uh, they were Michiganders. Some of them brought guns. They were derided as racist and hateful, stupid Trump supporters who just wanted to get their nails done. Right. COVID uh, as well. Yes. COVID idiots. Yeah. There was no lack of mean terms used to describe these people who were advocating for their freedoms and rights back. Uh, and then as soon as, you know, politicians derided them, newspapers, TV shows, everybody said they were horrible. Health officials, how can you do this in the time of, you know, pandemic panic? How dare you? Shortly thereafter, we had a brand new health pandemic, which required thousands of people to go out and protest in the street. This was praised by doctors. 
This was praised by politicians and news outlets and the exact same people who had derided these, you know, outspoken Michiganders in April. Whether you agree with the protest in Michigan that day or not, whether you agree with the protests and massive um, unrest that followed George Floyd's death or not, the two things are not different. Protesting for your rights and protesting for your rights are the same thing. Um, and that was enough to really make me incredibly angry. <laughs> um, I was so infuriated by this, uh, maybe parallax is the right word. I was just so angered by it that one group of people who decides to protest are the epitome of evil. Another group of people that choose to protest are, you know, heaven sent. How could, how, how is this a possibility? And the worst part is, how do you look at yourself and say these two things and believe them both to be true? Well, I feel like they were coming up with these kind of, these really kind of, they were doing a lot of mental gymnastics. Like, was it that the, the, the George Floyd protests, the people were always wearing masks without fail. You never saw anyone without a mask and they were somehow social distancing and the people in Michigan were not wearing masks as much. Like some of them were, maybe some of them weren't. Is that kind of all they could fall back on? Uh, yeah, there was something about that, um, which basically read like some protests are righteous and God shines his light on them and some are not. Right. You know, it was like the Crusaders who would go into battle feeling like, uh, you know, God was on their side, so they were definitely going to win. And that's just not a perspective that we had in the 20th century. That was right. just not something we were in favor of. And I'm starting to look back at the second half of the 20th century, which is, of course, time of my um, time of my youth. And I'm thinking, did we live through the most enlightened peacetime in, you know, in the history of the West? Is that what we had? Where reason and logic um, and being forthright and direct, we all basically talked about, um, we all sort of watched the same news and we thought, oh, these are trustworthy people, right? Uh, we all sort of thought our politicians were probably stupid, um, but we're trying, but we thought they were trying their hardest to do the right thing. I think that that all started to fracture around 2000 and with, um, you know, those hanging chads and the, the, the Gore Bush election, the early calls, all of that, it really started to fall apart. And now there's just so much national self-hatred that it's hard to, um, it's hard to see how we could find a way to live together respecting one another without placing undue demands on, you know, our friends and neighbors and family. Well, and this is, again, one of these obvious questions, and I feel like I ask it to almost every guest on this podcast, but to what do you attribute it? Is it something as simple as the advent of social media? I mean, yeah, it is. There was a time when there were three 
broadcast networks. Everybody watched the six o'clock news. Everybody read the newspaper. They read their local newspaper. They read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, whatever it was, um, certain corners. Everybody read the New Yorker that week and they talked about what was in there. There were trusted information sources. Now, somebody could also say, well, yeah, everybody was just in line in lockstep with a certain certain information source that might have been propaganda. Like, is it is it better to have everybody on the same page, but maybe the page doesn't have accurate information on it? Or is it better to let voices be heard that were never heard before and sort of have everybody talking at the same time? Uh, and as confusing as that is, at least people are given the chance to talk. Like, I, I don't know really yeah, how to answer know. that question. I mean, what what would I attribute it to? I don't think, I think we're not only not on the same page, I don't even think we're reading the same book. When I when I look at MSNBC and what they're saying about the state of the country, and when I look at, you know, Fox News and what they're saying about the state of the country, and then when you look at, you know, popular YouTube stuff, it's, it all, it seems like it's all from completely different nations. I, I think, um, I think in some in some way, as regards our national quest for you know equality of opportunity and equality under the law, uh, I think we got rather close to attaining it. Um, when I think we got rather close to attaining it, like you know through the nineties. I think I I you know maybe I lived in my own bubble. I was at Sarah Lawrence and all of this. Um, I lived in major metropolitan cities. You know, I had diverse friend groups. Um, People will say I, those were the Giuliani years in New York. That was the, you know, the notion of the super predator. It mm -hmm. was, you know, it was a great time. I mean, I'm just playing devil's advocate here yeah. because I, I felt that way living in New York City in the 90s too, but I was like a, a you know, little 20 something white girl. So yeah. it seemed pretty good I to mean, me. I mean, I was in Philadelphia also during that period of time. Um, and New York did seem over policed when I was here. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure what it can be attributed to. Uh, you could say social media, you could say, you know, cable news, because that started giving people more freedom of option. Mm -hmm. When or I was a kid, radio. if I went to, yeah, when I was right, a kid right. and I went to school on Fridays. Everybody had watched the Cosby show last night. We could all talk about it. Um, you know, we all wanted to be Lisa Bonet. Before we wrap it up here, what what do you make of the this collective chaos around the the masking? I mean, I don't this is, you know, the last couple of weeks we were the the CDC has like done an about face or at least like, you know, moved moved the goalposts in various ways so rapidly that I don't even want to try to make sense of it anymore. Like I, where yeah. is your brain at I think with that's this? In the, I think the confusion around masking has been present since, you know, March, 2020, you had the CDC and the world health organization saying, don't mask. You don't need to wear masks. And then it turned out that they were only saying that because they didn't want to risk not having enough supply for medical personnel. Um, and then they said, you know, do mask and then you can wear cloth masks. Um, don't buy these really good masks. And then it turns out they didn't want us to buy the really good masks because, again, it was a supply issue that they were concerned about. 
then there was do cloth masks work? Cloth masks work. And then it turns out maybe cloth masks don't work. Uh, then it turns out, you know, I mean, it's just been going back and forth this entire time. Um, and the CDC recommendations should have been merely recommendations. They, you know, people should have followed or not followed those recommendations as they personally deemed fit is my thought. There should absolutely have been no um, mandates by any governmental power telling people what they had to wear, whether it's on their face or any other part of their body. It's just not reasonable to do that. And I think that the fury over these um, masking flip-flops would have been solved if the uh, government had, you know, instead of demanding people do things and then not do things and follow the science and do the guidance and whatever, had actually had any respect for the American people to make their own determinations and to use their own intellect to decide for themselves what risks they were willing to take and not willing to take and whatever. Um, and a lot of it is about this messaging, right? And the messaging has been so tight and confusing because at no point do they want to um, allow for people to make their own decisions. They're so concerned that we're going to screw up that they're not ever giving us accurate information. And they haven't been saying things like, you know, we're not entirely sure about this, right? If they had come out, right? If the CDC had come out at the beginning and said, listen, uh, we're not entirely sure what's going on with this virus. We're doing a lot of research and we're trying really hard to figure it out. Um, it might help for you to wear a medical mask. We think that it probably will. We're concerned about supply. So, you know, keep that in mind and please don't go crazy buying all these masks. We're not sure if this, if they had been more direct and honest, I think the people would have had a lot more respect for their guidance as it went along. But instead, they took a position of absolute authority. And that absolute authority was backed up by executive leaders across the country from, you know, eventually Biden, but like across different states, Cuomo, Whitmer, you know, Inslee, all these guys just totally backed it without question. And then the mainstream media backed it without question. And then social media backed it without question. And they got their fact checkers in line to back it without question. If you look at the recent story, um, John Tierney, City Journal, I think, about how the fact checkers played into this, it was really fascinating too. And anybody who voiced any alternative opinion or even asked a question, was silenced across all of these platforms. Um, and that makes it very difficult to believe anything that you're being told. Do you find yourself like ruining dinner parties, um, being argumentative about these things? Um, is most of your social life such as it is, uh, or such as it has been in the last year, uh, are, are people fairly like-minded, um, or are you still kind of butting up against this yeah, kind of expected I don't see, ideology? I don't see a lot of people. It was sort of um, when my theater company closed and I lost that group of friends, I sort of lost my entire social life. Um, so 2019, I was starting to like, you know, sort of make new friends. <laughs> 
um, and go to stuff. And New York is so vibrant and there's always something interesting to do. So during 2020, uh, a lot of that just disappeared as well. Like the new acquaintances that I had made who maybe I would have been friends with. Um, everybody closed in on themselves. So I haven't been to a lot of dinner parties in the past little bit. I met you at a dinner party. That was nice. Um, yeah. But no, I don't find that. Um, I don't I don't find that there's an issue with my views, but mostly I, I don't try to talk to people about politics. I was recently I've seen family a bit and I was recently at a family wedding. Um, my baby sister got married and I have no interest in talking. I talked to politics with um, my cousin's husband, who's this great guy who's interested and like, so we talked about stuff, but I, I really try and just, uh, I just don't see the point. Like, it doesn't matter if we disagree about politics, if we love each other, it really shouldn't be an issue. It's gotten so much more divisive that now we assume that if someone disagrees with us, there's something wrong with them morally. And that in part, I think has to do with having removed the concept of, um, religion entirely or like a, a share you know we like we don't have a shared morality of being kind to one another anymore so we just assume that uh our views are what make us moral and they just aren't well libby this has been really interesting um uh i'm i'm really glad to have gotten to know you so thank you for for taking so much time to oh sure to speak with me and um i hope we can do it again another time thanks so much megan it was really a joy that was my conversation with Libby Emmons. Libby is the editor-in-chief of The Post-Millennial and a senior contributor to The Federalist. She has an MFA from Columbia University and a bachelor's degree from Sarah Lawrence College. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. For ad-free versions of this podcast, visit the Patreon page at patreon.com slash theunspeakable and support the show at any level. If you join at the $10 a month or higher level, you'll get $10 off your first purchase of official unspeakable podcast, Nuanced AF merchandise. There are hats, shirts, mugs, thermoses, stickers, magnets. Those magnets are ideal if you, like me, are a little commitment phobic about stickers. You can find all of that in the Nuance store on the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now for amazing savings. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know you're not alone. 
Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover. And so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family Support Services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.